initiation. Human beings aren't born. Human beings are made. And how do you make humans? Well, you've got to kill off their childhood. And why? Because the childhood doesn't give way. And then you need a culture that proceeds as if the greatest gift you can give kids at a certain age is to give them the chance to be human. Stephen Jenkinson For the most part, modern society takes the view that we're pre-wired to become fully functioning human beings. Of course, our schools teach us literacy and science and history to help us on our way, and our parents give us our morals, or try to. But there are few ceremonies or rituals to properly initiate young people into adulthood. By which I mean we offer no transformative rites of passage for young people to learn or earn the privileges and responsibilities of becoming a mature human being. And there are no ceremonies to teach children about death, neither theirs or that of their parents and loved ones. And for the curious... Reading scholarly accounts of initiation isn't much help. These works are often elusive and baffling, most likely because few anthropologists have experienced one. Scholarly accounts of initiation focus mostly on adolescent rites of passage, but these are just a prologue to full humanhood, not the full story. In fully intact societies, initiations weren't or aren't one-off events, but ceremonies that punctuated the lives of men and women at pivotal moments, including events like menstruation, marriage, conception, childbirth and death. Joseph Campbell's writings on initiation are visceral, writing about male puberty rites that happened in the Paleolithic caves of southern France and northern Spain around 30,000 BC. He reported this. Everything was done even in the period of the Paleolithic caves, to inspire in the youngsters being symbolically killed, a reactivation of their childhood fear of the dark. The psychological value of such shock treatment for the shattering of a no longer wanted personality structure appears to have been methodically utilised in a time-tested pedagogical crisis of brainwashing and simultaneous reconditioning of their minds for the conversion of babes into men, dependable hunters and courageous defenders of the tribe. These rites were intended to shatter adolescents' immature preoccupations by exposing them to the smell and the sound and the texture of death. They were exposed to risk and fear and the real possibility that they could die in an effort to kickstart an awareness they would carry through life. By doing so, the initiators, who were mostly the elders of the tribe, hoped to make death into something real and knowable instead of something remote and fearful. These rites of passage were a provocative antidote to the modern-day mantra that says knowing you will die is traumatising, or that end-of-life conversation should be avoided or tiptoed around until the right time or that children, and especially young children, should be shielded from knowing death, especially their own or that of their parents. By contrast, the purpose of culturally endorsed puberty rites is to end childhood and start personhood. 
These rites are meant to forge an ability to prize life and begin a kinship with death that says, your life has limits. The French Renaissance writer Michael de Montaigne argued that forging a kinship with death is the path to freedom. He wrote, To begin depriving death of its greatest advantage over us, let us adopt a way clean contrary to the common one. Let us deprive death of its strangeness. Let us frequent it. Let us get used to it. Let us have nothing more often in mind than death. We do not know where death awaits us, so let us wait for it everywhere. To practice death is to practice freedom. A man who has learned how to die has unlearned how to be a slave. Today's rites of passage aren't transformational because they don't annihilate the self-absorption of childhood to say nothing of forging a kinship with mortality. Our religious and social rites of passage, like the Jewish bar mitzvah, the Christian confirmation, the 21st birthday party, or getting the right to vote, are fail-safe rituals. They're relics of an old, initiatory rite that do nothing to break our attachment to childhood or set us on a path to further initiations and thresholds of change. In the West, the mark of personhood is psychological individuation, and for the most part, we achieve this when we've finally defined ourselves against our parents and against the cultural norms of society. This process really hits its stride in adolescence, a phase characterised by rebellion and a turning away from our parents and all that they represent. Within limits, this rebellion is accepted as a necessary part of growing up. Bad-tempered, self-absorbed, emotionally petulant teens are tolerated mostly because they're repeating a time-honoured norm that's familiar, even if it's not very welcome. Some parents even recognise themselves in their teenagers' revolt. Deep down, they might empathise with their kids' cynicism and isolationism because they know their troublesome teens have started to sniff the world of strife they'll inherit. Since 9-11... Many of the killings and acts of terror unleashed in Western countries were planned and perpetrated by so-called homegrown terrorists, mostly young men born and raised in the West. More than a few experts have diagnosed the radicalisation of young men as being the root of this phenomenon. The logic of their argument goes something like this. Disenfranchised young men are easy prey to the purveyors of radical Islam because they feel isolated and vilified for a host of complex reasons. As a result, their simmering resentments have become fertile ground for sowing the seeds of righteous hostility, retaliation and violence. Some proponents of this argument say young men at risk of being radicalised should be brought into the fold so that they feel they belong to understand that they have value and talents that can be put to good use in their communities. One question is, who should reach out to these isolated men and bring them back to the bosom of mainstream society? Who's best placed to counter the avalanche of radical propaganda pervading social media and the internet? According to some commentators, this job belongs to their politically moderate peers, responsible young men their own age, who've got with the program. Why? 
because elders and community leaders aren't trusted by radicalised young men, apparently. During the countercultural revolution of the 1960s, the student activist Jack Weinberg said, Don't trust anyone over 30, a line that still has currency today among some commentators who say young men at risk of being radicalised can only be reached by their peers. The Australian journalist Mark Seckham has argued that socialising young men into more moderate, law-abiding behaviour is too important a job to be left to grown-ups. In a 2015 article, Seckham wrote, For those at-risk young people, the grand mufti is an irrelevance, said Joshua Roos, a Muslim and research fellow at the Institute for Religion, Politics and Society at the Australian Catholic University. Most wouldn't know his name, said Roos. The key is finding a way to appeal directly to those at risk of radicalisation, working through intermediaries, be they elderly clerics, police or welfare workers, will not do it. What is needed is something, someone to make confused youth feel Australian. There are several such people out there, says Roos, young, educated, articulate, starting to be heard. They will be the key figures in the fight against radicalisation, not an elderly, largely irrelevant Egyptian bloke. So, elders and community leaders over the age of 30 are an irrelevance, goes the argument. They should leave the field of battle. Instead, the critical tasks of initiating young people into adulthood, of guiding them towards the community and its moral order, and away from the preoccupations and vanities of self-absorption, should be left to young people themselves. Meanwhile, the lack of transformative initiation rights could be opening a door wider to all kinds of problems, not only the possibility of homegrown terrorism. In our culture, adolescent psychological individuation, which means carving out an identifiable me, is done by separating ourselves from our parents and by turning inward, and away from society. But how do we learn to turn towards another? How do we tame the narcissism that's necessary for merging ourselves with another in intimacy, with our lover, our spouse, our children, and our parents? How do we begin to have these difficult conversations about dying and death, ours and theirs? In earlier times, puberty and other initiation rites were done by the elders of the community, people versed in the wisdom and the practice of their law, who were closer to death, and who had earned their position through learning and mastery, people who'd achieved mature states of personhood and leadership. These elders held the stories and the myths that taught what it meant to live deeply as a human. These stories and myths were handed down through repeated telling and we're entrusted to feed our capacity for wonder about love, life, the universe, and death. But today we have seniors instead of elders. Our seniors are people whose sole qualification for the title is to have lived long enough to attain it. But our seniors may be no wiser in the arts of living soulfully and knowing how to die than the rest of us. Like us, they were probably raised in a culture that gave them a free pass into adulthood. Alchemy is the transformation of base metal into something of value. 
but our modern coming-of-age rites require no effort or sacrifice, so they don't achieve the alchemy that's necessary to turn children into fully functioning or responsible adults. History has shown that old initiation rites can change our untutored and childish ideas of ourselves into true personhood, and by so doing, forge our tiny idea of ourselves into something grander and more valuable, into something infinite and deathless. <laughs>